0: welcome everyone. We, in 128, continue a series through the doctrinal statement that we have at Countryside Bible Church. One of the things that I do want to remind us is of the fact that the doctrinal statement is based on the scriptures, but the doctrinal statement itself is not the scriptures. And we want to be as faithful as we can when it comes to what the Bible teaches. I'm just gonna get down here one second and give one of the booklets to our visitors. Tom, uh, at the back, uh, in the box, there are some booklets here, thank you. The story is told of two Australian boys who were sailors and they were visiting England And just got off the boat and had wanted to go out to one of the pubs in London. They got into this pub and then drank themselves the liquid refreshments that were available to them into the early hours of the morning. And as they came out into this dense London fog, they began to stumble their way through. For some time they were on wobbly feet and they saw a man coming in towards them. But unknown to them, he was one of the highly decorated English naval officers. And so one of these Australian guys, he looked at them, looked at him and said, say, mate, can you tell us where we are? I don't think I got the accent right there, but you get what they're saying. (laughs) And the officer, after hearing that, uh, felt rather offended by these two blokes calling him mate and so he pointed to his metals on his chest and said do you men know who I am at which point one of the Australians said to the other we are in some real trouble now we don't know where we are and he doesn't know who he is (laughs) you know as you think of that interaction truth be told that little interaction actually captures where we are as a culture and a society. We don't know who we are anymore. Uh, There's so much confusion on as you think of genders. uh, There's so much confusion on every little thing. There's so much confusion on who we are. We don't know where we are and we don't know who others are anymore. In such a fog, in such a confused state That we are all in in such a dark state the Bible speaks with authority and with clarity as it sheds light on the truth as it speaks the truth it speaks the truth and it speaks coherently and consistently that's why we love this book it is God's Word and it accurately captures our state it represents our nature as it sees it but then it doesn't leave us there It provides us a way, and that way, the Bible tells us, is narrow, but it is the right way. So what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about you and me. Uh, Who are we as human beings? And so our title for the lesson tonight is, Who Are We? As we think of the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin. Who are we? Uh, That is, what is our identity? Uh, Why are we here on this earth? What is our purpose? Uh, What is wrong with us? What is our problem? And then finally, how do we solve what is wrong with us? What is our solution? What is the solution? Whether we understand it or not, whether we like it or not, each one of us has a response to these questions. Each faith system has a response to these questions. Who are we? What is our identity, our purpose, our problem, and what is the solution? And what we just did with looking at those questions is reflect and think something that is unique to human beings. As much as we love animals, they don't get together. They don't have conferences to talk about their identity, purpose, problem, and solution. They don't talk about how to be better dogs or better cats. Uh, You may think they're doing that, but this is uniquely human quality. It is a uniquely human thing, and therefore we're going to spend a few minutes asking and answering the questions that we just raised. Uh, The Bible provides an answer to those questions, and the doctrinal statement succinctly summarizes those answers for us. Uh, By the end of our time, our goal is to know what those answers are, but we're going to go beyond just knowing Our goal is to respond to that knowledge and to respond with obedience and then we will be transformed. Then we will be changed into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's begin with that first question as we think of our identity. Who are we? If you have the doctrinal statement in front of you, uh, you can find yourself on that statement and here is what it reads. We believe and teach that man was directly and immediately created by God in his image and likeness. Man was created free of sin with a rational nature, intelligence, volition, that is will, self-determination, and moral responsibility to God. God created man as a two-part being, a material body and an immaterial soul or spirit. It was the great Christian theologian, John Calvin, who wrote this in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without the knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. That is, if we don't have the right view of self, we won't have the right view of God and vice versa. But it also implies that without a humility on our part, we cannot even begin to understand ourselves. If you're honest, we'll admit that we live in a world that has a high view of itself, right? We think very highly of ourselves. We tend to think very highly of ourselves, and we have a low view of God's word. So, opposed to, as you walk into our lobby in the worship center, you see a high view of God and a high view of his word, of the scriptures. You know, a high view of God implies that we know and understand what it says and then believe what it says. And so we want to turn to God's word. And what does God's word teach us? As you look at the doctrinal statement in front of you, there are references to scriptures in that. One of the first ones is this fact that we are created by God. In the Bibles turn to Genesis chapter one, verse twenty six and twenty seven. Genesis 1, to 27. Moses records for us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Other things you want to take from that is man was directly and immediately created by God. Uh, That is that God himself created man. When I say man I am of course thinking of male and female. When I say that he was directly and immediately created by God, what we mean is that God did not outsource the process of the creation of man to someone or something out there. No, he himself created man. In Genesis 1, and 27, it tells us that God is the one who created man. It is a summary statement. And then if you go down to chapter 2, verse 7, it tells us how he did that. Notice verse 7 In chapter 2, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. We were created by God and we were created from the dust. Other passages repeat this particular idea that that we were created from the dust. For example, when sin entered the world, in in Genesis 3.19, we see this Uh, it says by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. We were created from dust. Not only were we created by God but we were also immediately created. That is we do not believe that we evolved over millions of years to be who we are today. Not only is that not Scientific, there's no scientific evidence for that, but to add to it when modern secular scientists tell us about the truthfulness of evolution, they suspend the very basis on which science is done in order to tell us that evolution is true. Why do I say that? Because they reach the conclusion before even they begin the process of question and research and hypothesis and experiment and analysis. Conclusion is reached before all of those steps have been even touched. We were created by God and we were immediately created by God. And we were created, chapter 1 tells us, on day 6. So man was created by God. But secondly, we are created in God's image. we created in God's image. Not only were we created by God, but we were created in God's image, in his likeness, the verse tells us, Verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1. Now that is an astounding truth. Here is someone who spoke everything into creation, into being, and he is the one in whose image you and I are created. Man has value. You have value. I have value because we have been created by God and we have been created in the image of God. What happens when that is not believed to be true? What if you don't believe that human beings are image bearers of God? Here's Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals. She declares without shame, and this is a statement that's almost 30 plus years back that she made. And this is what she says, A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. An animal is compared to and valued the same as a human baby. That's what happens when we don't think of babies made in the image, that are made in the image of God. Is it any wonder that more than 55 million babies have been slaughtered because of abortion? You see, because of a wrong view of what a human being is. What does such a philosophy lead to? That leads to a devaluation and disregard for the intrinsic worth of a human being. So what does it mean we were created in God's image? What, what does it mean that we are in, made in the likeness of God? In what way are we created in God's image? Now there are lots of different opinions on what it means, but let me summarize for us based on Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. What does it mean that we are made in the image of God? It certainly does not mean that we are little gods. No, it does not mean that. What then does it mean? Well, first of all, We are created in the same way as we think of the moral perspective. Uh, We are morally accountable creatures. And corresponding to that accountability, God has created us in his image by giving us an inner sense of right and wrong. That's what we mean, moral likeness. When we act according to God's standards, our likeness to God is reflected then in our holy and righteous behavior. Moral perspective. But there's also a second spiritual perspective. What is that? We do have physical bodies, but we are also immaterial beings, like we read in our doctrinal statement. We have a spirit, and therefore there is a spiritual life. Our spiritual life enables us to relate to God as persons. And because we also exist as spirit beings, we will not cease to exist. We will continue to live forever. If you're a follower of Christ, you will live with God forever. But there's a third aspect of us being created in God's image. It's the mental aspect. And here we have the ability to think and reflect. Uh, We analyze. uh, We rationalize. We consider the pros and the the cons of situations and circumstances. We have the ability to think about our pasts. Amazing uh, we have the ability to be in the present, to think where we are, seated right now. But we also have the ability to think about our future. And when something is not right, we think about what we can do about it. And many times we come up with solutions that do work. Uh, we speak to each other in what is called as a language, uh, that you understand what I am saying. We are creative beings. We, we create art and music and architecture. We write books and we read Books. We have the capacity to think. Fourthly, we are relational beings. We have the ability to commune and have fellowship with each other. What a wonderful and a beautiful thing it is to see brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. We strike up conversations in order to build up relationships, something that we see in the singles group quite a lot, right? We have fellowship with each other, something that has eternally existed between the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, and under relational, we can also say man is like God in his relationship to the rest of the creation. In Lotus verse 28 of chapter 1. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man has been given the right to rule over creation. And so not only do we fellowship and we rule, we also have emotions, we, we feel. Uh, now, to be fair to animals, we can say that even animals have emotions to some extent, but there is a difference between animal emotions and our emotions. Here's how Wayne Grudem puts it. He says, just imagine, after watching my son's baseball game, I can simultaneously feel sad that his team lost, happy that he played well, proud that he was a good sport, thankful to God for giving me a son and giving me the joy of watching him grow up, joyful because of the song of praise that has been echoing in my mind all afternoon, and anxious because we're going to be late for dinner. Now, it's very doubtful, he says, that an animal experiences anything approaching this complexity of emotional feelings. What a wonderful creature a human being is. Relational. And then finally, physical. Now, this one might surprise you. We are not stating that God has a body, because in John 4.24, our Lord tells us, God is spirit, and it is sinful to imply anything contrary to that. So in what way are we in the image of God when it comes to our physical features? Well, our physical bodies have eyes. With which we have the ability to see. The Bible tells us that God himself sees. Although he does not do it with physical features like we do. Uh, God sees. He hears our prayers. uh, He speaks. He has spoken so clearly through his word. And in the Old Testament many times we have God speaking audibly. So not only do we share some of the characteristics of God. But there are a few other things that that statement in front of you tells us what else does the doctrinal statement tell you? It tells us that we are a two-part being. It tells us that we are a material part, which is our body, and then there is an immaterial part, which is called soul or spirit. Now, These two words are different, and yet they both imply uh, that aspect of you and me that is immaterial, that is not seen with physical eyes. Uh, Soul, that word, comes to us from the Greek word psuche or psyche from where we get our English word psychology from and then spirit is the word pneuma or pneuma it's a study of the doc- pneumatology is a study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and so you have the word spirit in there and so some say that we are actually a three-part being and in trying to defend that they say our body helps us connect with others around us we see each other because we have a body our spirit helps us to connect with God and our soul helps us to connect with ourselves and so if you have something wrong with your body you go to the physician you go to the doctor if you have something wrong with your spirit you go to the pastor and if you have something wrong with your suke or psyche you go to the psychologist and so you see as we think of us as three part being we start presenting solutions that are not there but here in Countryside, we do believe that the Bible teaches that we are a two-part being because of some of the verses that I'm going to mention. If you have your Bibles, open up to Second Corinthians 5, 8. Now, you might be thinking, why is he taking the time to explain something that they do in counseling? But all of us do counseling if you're a follower of Christ to some extent or to a larger extent. And I think these ha- this has implications for how we do biblical counseling. Notice Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight. It's Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He writes, "We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, and to be at home with the Lord." in other words he is implying that there are only two places that we one place that we can be at one point of time go to romans chapter 8 verse 10 that may not be an, a direct one but here is another reference here is another of paul's letters he writes that if christ is in you though the body is dead because of sin Yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. You don't have to turn to this next reference, but Matthew 10, 28, our Lord says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. hell. Now Romans eight ten says the immaterial part of us is the spirit. And here in Matthew ten twenty-eight we are told the immaterial part of us is the soul. Now, do, we do admit that there are some good things in secular psychology, but they're only helpful as, as much as they help us diagnose what the issue is. But when it comes to a solution, we believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures and for the Scriptures to provide everything we need for life and godliness, Second Peter 1.3. We are not evolved then. We are not a result of an uh, impersonal force or... We are not chemicals coming together. No, there is a personal being that has created you and me. That is the God of the Bible. So what are some implications as we think of our identity, of who we are? You know, the truth of our creation is applicable for all of us. Whether you are born and raised in this country, or whether you come from India like I do, or whether you come from the Czech Republic, all of us, All of us are made in the image of God. Each one, regardless of our color, gender, cultural and ethnic background, financial background, you know, we were singing earlier uh, about that, uh, physical background, educational background, all of us are equal in that sense because we've been made in the image of God. So prejudice and partiality, bias and preferential treatment over the color of our skin or how much we are educated is a sin against our holy God. Because you and I are created by a God in whose image we have been created. And so we are to treat others as God treats us. He is a kind and a compassionate God. He is gentle and considerate. He is gracious and merciful. It's almost laughable what some of the other faith systems have as their origin. Uh, But what a great privilege and an honor God has given us that we are created in his image. What is man that you're mindful of him, says the psalmist. So first of all, then, our identity. Who are we? Secondly, our purpose. Why are we here? Why are we here? This is an important question. You know, understanding our purpose impacts and influences our daily decisions. It doesn't matter whether you're married or single. It impacts everything that you do. It gives us a a reason to live in the present. It also fills us with hope for the future. Uh, When purpose is lost, meaning is lost, and disappointment and discouragement and discontentment sets in. Uh, Some of the very common stories that come out of prisoner of war situations or labor camps when the world wars were going on, was this particular story where those who held these prisoners of war captive, they would make them work without a goal or a purpose in mind. I remember reading a story where a prisoner of war was asked to move a bunch of stones from location A to location B. And he did that for half of the day. And when it was 12 o'clock in the afternoon, he was told by this soldier to put those stones back from location B to location A. If you do this for a full day, it's enough to drive you insane. It drives us insane because God has created you and me for a purpose. Just moving stones from one location to another without being told what the purpose is drives us insane. And when we fulfill and when we don't understand that, It doesn't make sense of what we are doing. Discouragement and discontentment sets in. Uh, But when we fulfill the purpose God has made for us, our past makes sense. Our present is meaningful, and we are filled with hope for the future. Why are we still here? Because we believe God still has a purpose for each one of us. We do have a purpose, but we won't understand what that purpose is unless we understand, first of all, what is God's purpose for himself? I'm going to read from Jeremiah 13, 11, and then Isaiah. You, you can turn there if you want, but you can listen as I read. There is recorded, For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people for renown, for praise, for glory, but they did not listen. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. What is God's purpose for himself? It is to glorify himself. You see, God is about himself. God's purpose for himself is to glorify himself. Now here, we must be careful. What is true of God is not true of man. A man is created. A God is not a created being. You see, when man is all about himself, we call such a man what? Selfish, right? Or self-consumed. But when we are thinking and talking about the creator of this world, it is appropriate to talk about him in this way. Because that is what makes God, God. You see, if God is not about himself, then that would mean there is someone higher than God to whom that glory is due. But there is no one higher than God. He does not share his glory with another. And so we believe and teach, as you look at your doctrinal statement, that God's intention in the creation of man is that man should glorify God enjoy God's fellowship, live his life in the will of God, and by this accomplish God's purpose for man in the world. That then brings me, secondly, as this doctrinal statement mentions, what is the purpose of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Your purpose, my purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What a beautiful way the Westminster Catechism puts it. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, Paul writes, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Your purpose in life and my purpose in life is to live for the glory of God and to enjoy him forever. I don't have a reference there, but uh, in Psalm 73, that aspect of enjoying God is mentioned. Here's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 73. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on Earth. We are to delight in God. I never understand a Christian who's always sad. Oh yet, there are times when we need to mourn. Uh, there is time to be sad. But we are to a people who are, are joyful. Uh, uh, we desire nothing on earth except God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What a great privilege we have. Of rejoicing in our great God, He is a sovereign God. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You're here, I'm here on this earth to bring glory to God. What what does it really mean to bring glory to God? Here's how John Piper defines what it means to glorify. He says it means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect his, that is God's, greatness. That make that you make much of God. That give evidence of the supreme greatness of all his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. What a beautiful way to put it. We are here to make much of God. We are not here to make much of ourselves. No, we are here to make much of God. God to glorify God is to praise and worship him in all of life it is to praise him for who he is it is to praise his actions it is to trust in his name and it is to obey his word when you do that you're glorifying God Uh, to glorify God is to live in such a way that all of who we are is is lived in submission to all of who God is uh, there's not a single sphere of our life that, is even, that we can even attempt or should attempt to be lived outside of the sphere of God's influence. Uh, to glorify God is to evaluate every decision we make, every relationship in our life, every project that we undertake, and everything that we do in light of God's pleasure. Uh, is what I'm going to do now going to bring pleasure to God? Is God going to be pleased with this? If you're an accountant, it means that you go and be the best accountant as a follower of Christ. Uh, If you're a teacher, you be the best teacher, the best electrician, uh, the best worker, the best doctor, the best politician, the, the best mom, the best dad, the best single adult that you can be. All, all to please and honor God through your life. And that is what it means to glorify God. You know, at the end of our earthly life, what a wonderful tribute it would be to hear about us. Uh, That man, he lived for the glory of God. Uh, That woman, she lived for the glory of God. That man lived to please God. That woman lived to please God. Now that is what God has created us to be. If that is true, and it is, if it is true that man was created free of sin, then we have to ask ourselves, what really happened? Why don't we live for that purpose for which we were created? This is where it helps us understand the problem. As we move to the third question, our problem, what is wrong with us? traditional Hinduism says, what is wrong with us is that we have forgotten that we are gods and we need to do things to remind ourselves that we are gods. And so yoga is one of the ways in which you remind yourself that you are divine. See, your problem will determine what the solution would be. According to the Bible, the problem is sin and we'll talk about that. When we were created, we were created free of sin. That's what the doctrinal statement states and that's what the Bible states as well, but with an ability to sin. Here's how some Christian thinkers, including Augustine and Puritan writers such as Thomas Boston, thought about it. Here's how they put it. Uh, Before the fall, we were able to sin. We were able to sin. And after the fall, we were unable not to sin. Those are the Latin phrases that go along with that. But let's read the account of our fall in its totality. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We'll read God's instruction. What is it that Adam and Eve did that was considered disobedience, that was considered sin? Notice verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then turn to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty. Serpent representing Satan. Was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. What a tragic circumstance. Look at your doctrinal statement. It says, we believe and teach that in Adam's sin of disobedience to the revealed will and word of God, man lost his innocence incurred the penalty of spiritual, physical, and eternal death, became subject to the wrath of God, and became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God apart from the divine grace. We believe and teach that because all men were in Adam as their legal representative, the real guilt of, for Adam's sin and a corrupt nature have been transmitted to all men of all ages, Jesus Christ being the only exception. All men are the sinners by nature, by choice, and by divine declaration. What's going on there? Adam, it says, is our representative. That is, he is our head. Just like we uh, have a president that represents us when he goes to other countries, he represents you and and me. Uh, That is the way in which that phrase is used. And so Adam is our representative his sin brought sin into the world, and all who were made in the image of God became sinners. To the question, "What is wrong in this world?" it is sin. It is sin, isn't it? To sin simply is to do what God has told you not to do, and it is to do what God has to, it is not to do what God has told you to do. So let me repeat that: to sin is to do what God has told you not to do, and it is not to do what God has told you you must do. And it's more technical definition. To sin is to miss the mark. It's to miss the mark. It is to hit the wrong target completely. Uh, Romans 1, Paul writes, it is, We have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for, the, for an image in the form of a corruptible man. That's what we do when we sin. We exchange, uh, we, we give glory to someone else rather than God. In John chapter 3, it says, men love darkness rather than light. In 1 John 3, verse 4, it says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. A story is told of the Times Magazine, which is a British magazine, used to be one. Uh, sent out an inquiry to famous authors asking the question, what is wrong with the world today? A Catholic uh, apologist by the name G.K. Chesterton responded simply, Dear Sir, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. We're all sinners by nature, by choice, and by divine declaration. Just like we have physical features that we've inherited from our parents, we also inherit a sinful nature coming directly from Adam. Isn't it David who writes in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. We did not only inherit sin, sin was imputed to us, as you read in the doctrinal statement. It comes from Romans 5:18. Through one transgression, it says, there resulted condemnation to all men. There is inherited sin, there's imputed sin, but there's also personal sin. Not only are we sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by actions, by the, the choices that you and I make every day. And because of our sin nature, we are, not, we are unable not to sin, as it says on the screen. That's what we do, because that's what is our nature. It's in Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.10, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. There's not a man like that. 1 Kings 8.46, 2 Chronicles 6.36, For there's no man who does not sin. Every one of us is a sinner. The question then is, what can we, if we do anything about our sin? And a story is told of an unbeliever with whom the gospel was being shared. And this unbeliever said, Sir, you're telling me that sin is like a weight that I carry? But I don't feel any weight on my back or on my mind. And so the evangelist thought for some time and he said, Imagine if you were in a morgue where all the dead bodies are kept. Imagine now a corpse is lying in the middle of this morgue. If you placed a heavy luggage on this corpse... Would the corpse feel any weight? No. How about two luggages? How about two suitcases on this corpse? Would it feel any weight? No. It wouldn't. Why? Because it's dead. That's why, sir, you are dead in your sins, and therefore you cannot feel the weight of your sin. Uh, The doctrinal statement goes on to say, say, with no recuperative powers to enable him to recover himself, man is hopelessly lost. Each one of us is lost. And then this ray of hope. Man's salvation is thereby holy of God's grace through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is that we are dead in our sins and so spiritually speaking we are dead. But what then is the solution? We will be covering the solution at length in the next couple of sessions. So here I just want to share it with you because I don't want you to go without hearing the gospel. I don't want you to feel discouraged and go from here. So there is hope. What is the solution? What is the way out? The only solution is available through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful sound there is to these words. Romans 5, 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. What beauty is there to these words? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. To the question from the Philippine jailer to Paul and his companion, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. You see, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is one side of the coin of conversion. But the other side is that of repentance. Uh, To repent is truly be sorry for your sin. Sorry not because you were found out. Sorry not because you feel bad. Sorry because you have offended a holy God. Uh, You have broken his law. To repent is to, is to turn from sin and turn to God. It's a complete U-turn. See, when you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God hears your prayers and he grants you forgiveness. Romans 5.18, Paul writes, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when you repent and believe, there are a number of things that simultaneously happen in your life. You're, you're, you're first of all, justified, you're declared righteous, uh, you, you're sanctified, you're declared holy, and God makes a way for you to be like Him progressively. Uh, You are adopted into the family of God. You are a child of God. You are a part of his family. You can call other believers brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't call them brothers and sisters because you forget their name, although that can happen sometimes, no, but you call them because they are a part of the family of God, just like you are. You are preserved, that is, he will never let you go. You never lose your salvation. And the Bible tells us that one day you will be glorified. No longer sin having any power or impact. You will be away from the presence of sin. What a wonderful reality in the future that is. But God begins that process in you. That reversal process in you right here. He begins that restoration process in you. So we can say... As you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will be saved. What is the reality for the regenerate man? It is the fact that we are able not to sin. And the fact for the glorified man is that we are unable to sin. What a day that would be. it? Paul who writes, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. How do we respond to what we have heard? Well, I have three responses. Well, First of all, it's worth praising God for creating you. It's worth praising God for creating you. It was the last time as you thought of it, God, thank you for bringing me into this world. I don't deserve to be here, but you're a gracious and a merciful God. If you're married, I'm sure you think of your spouse in this way. I thank God for creating my spouse, right? Thank God for creating my children. Thank God for creating the people that you've surrounded me with. Uh, Secondly, plunge yourself wholeheartedly into fulfilling God's purpose for you. Uh, John Piper has a book that says, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your time trying to entertain yourself. Don't waste your life in doing things that have nothing to do with the purpose that God has for you. No, wholeheartedly plunge yourself into fulfilling God's purpose for you. There's no time to do anything except to seek the glory of God. And then thirdly, if you're here and if you've placed your trust in Christ, thank God for saving you. Thank God for saving you. Perhaps you're here and you do not know what I've just shared about. You do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Uh, God will draw close to you. Those who draw close to God, James tells us, God will draw close to them. Call out to to him even today. Let me close our time in a word of prayer as, um, as our music team comes in closes us out with a, word, with a song. Father, thank you for this reminder from your word. Our precious truths these are. The fact that uh, we are not a result of some random activity taking place in this world. We're not a result of some billions of years of time that has gone behind us. No, you created us. You have created us and you have created us in your image and likeness. Oh Lord, we Thank you for creating us. Uh, Thank you for the fact that even when we sinned against you, that you took the initiative of loving us, that you send your only begotten son into this world, that he took on flesh and for eternity he will have flesh as a reminder to us of the fact that the second person of the Trinity humbled himself, became man, And he died for us so that we would have a way to be right with you. What a glorious reality that is. I pray for each one of us who is a follower of Christ here. I pray that you would help us appreciate these things and live in the light of the reality of the fact that we are to live for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen. Let's go ahead.